Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody. Thanks so very much for joining us tonight. It's going to be a good show and I'm really looking forward to it. First off though, I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk and his wife Deb for how they have so 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 honorably pre- preserved traditions of native storytellers. Um they are an amazing couple. Check them out on the internet. They have provided some amazing stories, and I do believe their CDs are still available. So getting on to tonight, I can't wait. This is this is the kind of topic that I love to get my teeth into, lunatic asylums and ghosts and all sorts of things. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark because he's got control of this one. There you go, Mark. Thanks. How are you, Barbara? Doing well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you had a very uh, informative show yesterday, and well, we got a whole bunch of really exciting new people coming up through February and you know, starting to book up March. So, have a terrific uh, couple months of. Show, uh, Monday and Tuesday shows lined up for everyone. Um, yeah, the other lovely Sherry in my life, Sherry the Yinzer, is tuned in and is about to hear uh, paranormal happenings from her beloved Western Pennsylvania. Uh, when one watches you know, the ghost hunting uh, TV shows, uh, Many of the locations are exotic. Uh, Appalachia isn't usually considered an exotic destination. Uh, Most of the time, Appalachia just isn't even considered. But uh, we do have a rich prehistory with the Kanawha Valley as the premier necropolis for giants. There's the Mothman, Flatwoods Monster, and... We'll be getting uh, into some new destinations tonight, like Ohio's 
Zor Village, uh, the Nima Colon Castle, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Our guest is Sherry Brake. She is the author of several books on the paranormal. Uh, she is a frequent lecturer at paranormal events such as the Mothman Festival and the Kent Stage with George Norrie. Uh, maybe you saw her die during a Civil War reenactment, and Sherry has a tour company that leads groups through many haunted houses, villages, prisons, and she does international tours to Ireland and Scotland. Uh, you can learn more about Sherry at her website, hauntedhistory.net. Hi, Sherry. Hey, Mark. Hello, Barbara. How are you guys doing tonight? Oh, fun, fun. Just this is you know, our usual uh, Monday and Tuesday lineup, and we're just glad you're a part of it. With the, so, well, thank you very much for for having me on. I've really been yeah. looking forward to it, and I, I, you know, I enjoy the wide array of of subjects that you that you both have. So it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you're going to be broadening that here over the next couple hours you know you have uh, and I probably sh- sh- should mention um, some of your uh, books right here at the beginning Haunted Stark County Ohio The Haunted History of the Ohio State Reformatory The Haunted History of the West Virginia Penitentiary Fireside Folklore of West Virginia Volume 1 uh, you know, we'll get into you know, you know your Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum book. You have two more in the uh, works that you know we'll talk about um, in in a little bit. Uh, but you know, you, you, know, you do you know these paranormal investigations. You're in uh, West Virginia, Ohio, uh, Kentucky. You have one coming up, and it's going to be at the Nima Colon Castle. I've driven past this place numerous times. Uh, it's a beautiful old house. Um, I, I've never uh, gone inside of it, which I regret uh, not doing that, but... Um, could could do a field trip uh, sometime, but um, you should you should yeah yeah uh, I'm I'm gonna have to do that at some point. Um, but you know, the Nema Colon Castle isn't a uh, a topic heard on late night radio, but we want to hear about it from you. What? is there to draw you to bring a group of people for mm-hmm. a paranormal investigation of this property. So you know, t- tell us a little bit about the, this sure, sure. castle. Uh, I will. When, uh, when I first began Haunted Heartland Tours, which is my tour company um, back in about 2003, I, started off with a foundation of history. Since I was a Civil War reenactor, I was always drawn 
to the history of locations. And as a paranormal researcher and investigator for almost 30 years, I have loved history. History to me is the foundation of what I build my investigation upon. And when I do my tours, I love to, to you know, give people that information, that history, the architecture, the background of where we're going to be investigating. And, you know, that's why I love Nima Colon Castle. It's not one of the big, bad buildings that you see, you know, that is beaten to death on a lot of these paranormal television shows. You know, you see the same places over and over and over again. And I love these little gems, these little off the, you know, beaten trail Mm-hmm. Uh, locations to take people to explore. Nima Colon Castle is just that. It is actually the third oldest castle uh, in the United States, and um, it's more like a like a castle home. It's not what you would envision, like you know the castles of England and Ireland and Scotland and Germany and whatnot like that. I mean, it does have a crenellated tower. It is beautiful. It sets up on the hillside. Uh, and it has a very commanding presence. And the history of not only the building, but of that site uh, dates back to you know French and Indian time and even before that as well. And, you know, being into the paranormal, when you have a building upon building upon building upon a prehistoric site, uh, you really up your chances of, of, you know, getting something to happen when you do your uh, investigation. Um, it's a fascinating building. And like I said, you know, it, it, it set, sits up on the hillside uh, over top of the Mon River. Um, it was built around the original trading post, which was uh, occupied that site earlier. It was the site of Fort Bird, B-U-R-D. Uh, and it was um, built by British colonists during the French and Indian War. Uh, the construction on the castle has gone, you know, through different time frames, continued on through the Victorian era, and only one family ever occupied it, and that was the Bowman family. So sometimes it's referred to as Bowman's Castle as well as Nima Colon Castle. Um, so you've got it being built, you know, in the 1770s, 1780s, and it's, you know, it. It's an amazing building because even as you're walking up the hillside to it, you get that vibe, you get that feeling, you get mm-hmm. that that um, that essence that this is this is really a cool place. There were things that happened here uh, throughout the years, and I really believe that that layers itself upon the the atmosphere, and that that people can can feel that you know when they go there to investigate. So I'm really looking forward on getting back there in April. Uh, and investigating it. It's really a cool uh, location to explore. Yeah, and it's the third oldest castle in the United States. Is that right? Right, right. I think uh, the oldest one, I believe, is in uh, Virginia. Uh, It was probably built back in the, gosh, like 1650s. Um, I think it's in Surrey, Virginia. And then the the next one on the list is uh, Castillo de San Marcos. Um, I think that was about 1670, 1680. And then you've got Bowman's Castle or Newman's Castle uh, that was uh, started in 1789. So, 
Um, the cool thing is, you know, there's only been one family that lives in there, the Bowman family. Uh, mm-hmm. Very rich history. And a lot of the furniture that is in that building is still the original furniture. And there's clothing. You can open up some of these closets and see these old dresses and nightgowns and things that they wore throughout the years. It's still there. And all that stuff carries energy. Mm-hmm. Is there something that happened within the walls of the castle to make it haunted? Well, as as far as it being built on the site of a fort, you know that there had to been some violence that occurred back during that time frame. And the fact that it was right off of Nima Colon's uh, path or trail, which was a, that's an ancient Native American trail that crossed through the mm-hmm. mountains there. So you've got, uh, you know, you've got that indigenous people uh, that use that pathway and probably, you know, of course, used it to do some of their raids, of course, back in the day. So you've got that early frontier history with the Delawares and the Shawnee and the Iroquois and, you know, all those Native Native Americans. Um, we've had some pretty unusual things that have happened inside the uh, the building there at the castle. Um on some of our investigations, of course, people have smelled uh, smoke. Uh, I've had a couple of people tell me it was like uh, black powder that they smelled, which, of course, you could link that back to the frontier days. Right. Um, we've had uh, some folks that have seen uh, shadow people walking up and down the hallway, you know, and uh, – it's really, it's really a, a, a cool place to explore, and I, I just really can't wait to get back. We do a small group hunt is what we do, so we only take 25 people. Okay, and you have said that there's a cistern in the basement. Right. Does that play any kind of role with? You know, water being in the house, and you, know, you already said you know, it sits on this uh, commanding knoll overlooking the Monongahela River. But, you know, right. so it's you know there's water all in the house uh, over the hill from it. How does water I play think, a role? Yeah, I personally I think. Uh, that that having the water feature there, whether it's something on the property and it's underground, or you have the cistern in the building, I think that that can at times enhance uh, paranormal activity. Uh, whether it's a conduit or it holds the energy, uh, I'm I'm not sure. I don't think any of us really know for sure. But the fact that that building, you know, is built with with uh, sandstone, limestone, you know, that crystal quartz content uh, Mm -hmm. to it. I think that that magnifies uh, the energy, Um, just like some of these other large places that I investigate, you know, the Ohio State Reformatory, the West Virginia Penitentiary, buildings like that that are built with that, with the crystal in the walls, the quartz in the walls. I think um, it holds the energy. It's like a battery, you know, and and I think you bring in delay lines, uh, you know, underground water systems, a cistern in the basement there, um, Nemecolin Castle being perched on the hillside on a main river off of a main Indian trail. Uh, I think you've just really got the recipe right there for, for paranormal activity. Yeah, 
the yeah, you, know, you were just bringing up uh, the like foundations and some of the other uh, you know some buildings were made out you know from brick and you know you have a, a number of different um, construction materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know is there uh, like sandstone in limestone? A lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit of everything at uh, Nima Colon Castle. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, because it's been added on throughout the years. So you have uh, you have different materials. Uh, I mean, when you originally walk into the building, you wouldn't think that it was a castle because you walk into an area with a hearth and uh, some logs and mm-hmm. uh, just a very you get a very rustic feeling because you're entering into the oldest part of the building, which was you know originally part of the fort. So, Sherry, uh, what does the water in the basement and the water in the Mon or the Monongahela River have to do with the uh, paranormal mm-hmm. investigations and you know ha- hauntings within the house. Well, that's that's a good question, and of course, you know, with investigating the paranormal, we've got nothing but theories, theories to go on, you know, because we don't know for sure. But for me, with having almost thirty years of experience. With investigating and researching, I find that uh, locations and houses that have water on the property uh, seem seem to have more paranormal activity than those that do not. Whether it is an underground water system, a river, or a cistern in the basement, like at Nima Colon Castle, um, I don't know if it is a conduit for earth energies or it helps hold the energy there or brings energy to the property, I don't know. I just find that with my experience that it seems like locations like this uh, are more active with water in the area. And, of course, you're, you know, you're talking about the castle sitting on the hillside overlooking the Mon River, being on the uh, Native American Indian uh, path, Nima Colon's Trail, um, and I think all of that, all the thousands of people that have traveled through the area, they bring their energy. You've got the energy of the water of the Mon River. You've got the, the energy of the water being in the basement. You have the building itself uh, being built of various materials, some of these containing uh, quartz or crystal with limestone, sandstone, uh, building materials. So I think it all kind of factors in to the paranormal activity and how much of it that you have there at the castle. Okay. And since you do dowsing, have you Mm -hmm. uh, picked up anything about uh, ley lines running through the property, this what the you know the water source doing something unusual you have you investigated that angle yet 
I have not doused the property on the outside of the building. I have only done throughout the building, um, and it's probably around 15,000, 16,000 square feet. I've done inside the building. I can tell you from personal experience, though, that wherever there are major waterways, there are usually ley lines. And, of course, this is true, especially throughout the Ohio River Valley. So, you know, and I, and I think, you know, the fact that this building, uh, you know, 1,200 years ago, before the construction of the fort or the castle, uh, or the trading post, you have these prehistoric indigenous peoples um, that had built some type of earthwork mound there mm-hmm. at that site. So you have the layer upon layer upon layer of different peoples, different cultures, um, being above a major waterway, having a cistern in the basement, having the building with the quartz and the crystal content, having the same family live in that building from the very beginning, the Bowman family. Um, having all of their antiques and their clothing still present in the building, I think all of it just adds up for a for a recipe of of activity in that building. Okay, and yeah, I'm not sure how how much uh, I, I don't think we've r- repeated too much before. Our our good buddies at the NSA uh, kicked us off the air, uh, so <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to go. Go back over too too much of uh, you mm-hmm. know the, the, the same material with, you know of uh, the Nima Colon Castle, but uh, you know since, since you were uh, you know discussing the layers upon layers of um, um, you know, building the, materials and different it, people, it, yeah, and, and you know like the Irish and German immigrants, uh, you know. Moving into you know the eastern seaboard and uh, pushing west a little bit, um, you know we could look at other uh, you know regions of Appalachia, you know like the Whipple Company store that you, know, you cover in your uh, Fireside Folklore yeah. of West Virginia Volume One. What, yeah, what's the yeah. yeah? That's you know you bring up some of the um, more infamous aspects of the Appalachian region. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what makes that uh, unique building so uh, historical? Uh, you know, representative of the area. Well, you know, you brought up a. a details there about the you know the scots irish immigrants coming into the area and the germans and pushing westward and you know when they came and they settled throughout the appalachian mountains of course they brought their uh their trades with them their beliefs their stories their music um you know the traditions that they had uh and um i love living where i live in central west virginia because i'm surrounded by mountains i'm surrounded by folklore i'm surrounded by these little uh, off the beaten path gems, as I love to call them, that have paranormal activity. And the Whipple Coal Company store uh, in Fayette County, West Virginia, is one of those. I have rented that building out for um, ghost hunts. I've done investigations 
and the property for probably about the last 10 years. The building has sold as of last year, so we have a new owner um, that is owning the building. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with it. But the the building um, was built back in uh, during the coal mining wars, back in the heyday. Um, it's fascinating history there because not only when you go into an area and you open up mines and a company comes in and builds their company store, um, you know they hire the coal miners, they build the company store. The coal miners are paid in scrip. It's a special mm-hmm. type of coin that is only good at that uh, location, at that general store. So the Whipple Coal Company store was owned by a man by the name of Justice Collins, and he built this building for his general store. On the third level, uh, top level of the building, he had a ballroom. So they would have all these grand parties there as well. Of course, the coal miners aren't invited to that. This would be other prestigious people in the area, you know, the shakers and movers of the area that would be invited to that. Uh, The Whipple Coal Mining Store, in the basement, they embalmed over 5,000 coal miners. Wow. These were coal miners that died um, from uh, epidemics, died from um, different diseases, were killed in mining accidents, and they would be brought into the basement of the Whipple Coal Mining Store, and they would be embalmed. Somebody would pray over them. They would be uh, wrapped up in a linen or a quilt and put in a casket and taken in and buried locally. Now, the women of that community who were married to the coal miners would not be embalmed if they passed, only the men. Uh, this building was built on the site of a native Indian burial ground. Now, you hear stories about that. You know, you hear stories right. about people will say, oh, it's probably built up on a burial ground. They, it's hearsay. With this building, it is not hearsay because they actually had a college come and they did archaeological digs on the grounds of the Whipple Coal Mining Store and found bodies, various bodies buried throughout the area there. Uh, so it is a documented burial site for Native American Indians. Um, you've got some murders that occurred inside of the building. There was a man that was found hanging uh, in the elevator shaft. There were people that uh, had been murdered. They were shot on the steps entering into the general store. So this was a very violent period in West Virginia history with the coal mining wars. So you have the owners who are, of course, against the unions, and you have the workers that want the unions there. Mm -hmm. So you would often have, you know, gunfights, battles, and and whatnot. And uh, there were five or six deaths, I believe, that were documented there at the Whipple Coal Mining Store. It's a pretty cool building. I I have done um, investigations there. I've had overnight ghost hunts, and I've also instructed ghost hunting classes. Uh, excuse me, ghost hunting classes on site uh, in, in the building uh, before we do the investigation. Um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of a, a a new chapter that this building has with the new owner. Okay, and it, it, there there was a hanging in the. Hanging in the elevator, in the elevator shaft. It was one of those old hand crank freight elevators. 
Right. And uh, the story that I got from the owner who she ran the museum in the building and she did all the research and she led daytime tours and whatnot. And she had a strong connection to the area and to its history. And uh, she had told me that there was a poker game that was uh, going on late one evening after hours. And apparently the guy that was, that was winning, who was ahead of the game, Mm -hmm. um, didn't make it out of the building alive that night. And he ended up being the one that was accidentally hanged inside the elevator shaft accidentally figure that one out uh, just, just like we accidentally uh went off the air for 10 minutes <laughs> i had no idea right. that happened Ac- but. accidentally um but there were other accidental deaths in the whipple store as well another one uh took place in a room that they called the green room the green room is the room that would have, you know, the sugar, the salt, the different grains, your flour, and you would come in and you would use your script that you had been paid in, and you mm-hmm. would go into the grain room and you would get five pounds of this, ten pounds of that, and you'd pick up your coffee and whatever. Uh, and one morning, um, the shopkeeper came in and opened up the door to the grain room, and there was a man whose upper body uh, was found buried down inside a bag of grain. So he accidentally suffocated, is what the report said. And you have to remember, these coal, these coal mining barons that owned these coal mining communities and towns, they also wrote the newspaper. There was a newspaper that was also printed in the basement of the Whipple Coal Mining Store. So they could, they could report however and whatever they wanted to. Okay, and you, know, you do document – uh, bullet holes fired from the outside that uh, ha- have left marks inside the building. It, yeah, they went through. Uh, it went through. There's a big plate glass window up above the door of the entryway to the Whipple Coal Company store. Mm-hmm. And okay. um, when uh, when the owner first purchased the property, she thought that maybe somebody had driven by and had just shot the front of the building up, you know, on a whim. And mm-hmm. then after she started talking to locals and doing investi- you know, investigating it and researching the property, she found out that that was from a- an actual shootout uh, from probably around the 1920s, I think it was, and that they had just never – they had never changed the window. And here she was getting ready to replace history, and uh, it's still visible today. I mean if you drive by and pull up in the, in the parking lot there, of course, it's a, it's, the building is closed up now. But you can stand outside and you can uh, you can see the bullet holes across the the front of the building there. Well, uh, yeah, it's just one of those interesting aspects of re- regional history that um, you know, a lot of people um, may not realize how. Uh, you know, violent the uh, you know union and very very violent. Yeah, I'm just the control over the local economy. It's might seem stereotypical, but you know that is one of the you know the way things were. At you know, like uh, what 
you know, like we're talking like the 1890 to the 1920s, that kind of like time period. Right, right, right. Yeah, the building was originally built right around 1890. So, uh, and that is correct. And it's a bloody history in southern West Virginia because of all the mines and the mine wars and, and, you know, what was going on. Sure, they gave you a job. Sure, they gave you company housing. Uh, sure, they had a company doctor that would that would come and see you, but what a price you paid. Um, there was I remember one story. There was a gentleman that came to the the coal mining store there at Whipple, and he tried to purchase something with scrip from another coal mining company, and they shot him dead on the spot. What? Was it, you know, they just didn't like the idea of oh, that, uh, competition? That, right. Sure, sure. How dare you come in here to our general store? How dare you come and try to pay, you know, with script from another company? Okay. So yeah. let, let's move from, you know, the Whipple Company store to – you know, one of the places that you visit on a regular basis that uh, it's a complete change of you know, lifestyle, uh, but there's still this uh, paranormal Paul might be the right word, you know, hanging over it. it mm-hmm. It's the Zor Village. Uh, it, <laughs> that's a really unique uh, story as well. It, you know, I'm sure most of the listeners are going to be interested in like, you know, how's this village become haunted? So right, get, right, give us the right. background there. Oh, yeah. I, I love Zor, Ohio, and I, I really wish somebody would do a movie or a documentary on this little quaint historic village. Um, the basic history is, uh, well, of course, you know, we live in 21st century America. We would find it very difficult to imagine living without some kind of religious freedom. Um, but that's that's exactly what brought these people from Germany to Zor in 1817. You go back to to Germany here. You've got a group of uh, people who are not happy, hundreds and hundreds of people who are not happy with the Lutheran church at the time in 1870. They didn't believe in several things that the Lutheran church believed in. Uh, For instance, they did not believe that marriage was a religious ceremony. They believed it to be more of a contract between a man and a woman. They did not believe in removing their hat and curtsying or bowing to the king and queen. They thought that you should only do that to God. So this caused a lot of grief for them in Germany. They would be beaten in public for their beliefs. Husbands and wives would be separated. Children would be taken away. I hate to compare it to you know, the Nazis and the Jews, but in a way, that's the type of atmosphere that you had back then, to the point that these poor people hid out in the Black Forest. Uh, They had some Quakers that helped them. 
they gathered together, they banded together, they got enough money to get passage to America. And they came to America and they purchased property in Tuscaroras County, Ohio, which is just south of Canton, Ohio, by about half an hour. Mm -hmm. And they settled their own community. Now, the reason they picked that area in Tuscaroras County and in Ohio is kind of unique. Um, There was a woman in Switzerland by the name of Barbara Gruberman. And Barbara was a, a trance medium. She was a spiritualist. She could put herself into trances and she could prophesize. And the Zorites, these German separatists in Germany, found this woman and she kind of became their spiritualistic mother. And she had a vision of them coming to America and starting their own community. And they wanted her to come with them to America, but she she passed away, unfortunately. She was sick, and she passed away. She could not make the trip. So you have this group of 200 people coming over, 1817. They they take some months, of course, to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, By wagon, they come down into Tuscarawas County, and they settle, and they, they plant crops. They fell the trees. They build cabins. Um, they start uh, their own community with their own beliefs, their own convictions. And in a way, they're like the Amish. They kept to themselves. They didn't like outsiders. Well, in 1833, they've got the bright idea to build a hotel, the Zor Hotel. Beautiful building, uh, three stories tall, has a cupola up on top of it. It is still standing today. And when they built this building back in 1833, they knew it would draw outsiders in. But I don't think they realized what kind of an effect it would have on the Zorites. Because, see, you have young girls and you have young men who are being raised in the way of Zor to not use money to not dress fancy, you know, fancifully, uh, to be very plain and very simple. Well, you build this hotel, and what does it do? It brings in all of this money. It brings in all of these people and these beautiful carriages. Uh, President McKinley would come and have lunch at the Zor Hotel from his home in Canton. Uh, and you bring in greed because now you've got these young Zor boys and girls who see money, who see all these grand parties taking place at this hotel, and they start to rethink the way that they've been brought up and the way that they've been raised. Maybe Zor's not for me. Maybe I'll leave. Again, kind of like the Amish. Many of the Zorites believed that when they built that hotel, they cursed the town. Um, the separatist community there lasted until 1897, and then they disbanded. So the buildings in this village are owned by the Ohio Historical Society, which is now the Ohio History Connection. And uh, they own a handful of buildings and basically rent the town out. And we have our investigation there after hours into the building. We do the Zor Hotel. We do the Zor Bakery. We do uh, a grand mansion, um, which is called the number one house that was built for the spiritualist father of Zor. Uh, and then we investigate the tin shop, and we also investigate the Zor Garden, which is absolutely beautiful. Very, very large garden area. Very spiritual 
garden as well. Um, and we've had activity in every single building that we investigate at. It, it really is a, a very interesting historical village. Okay. Hey, uh, uh, sure. I think we got cut off again. Oh, okay. Uh, I. No, you're still here. You're um, still here. Oh, oh, we are. That's good. <laughs> you're fine. Oh, gee. Uh, okay. Um. Okay. So, sorry about that. I just uh, it's not like we went off the air. Okay. So, uh. We have outsiders arriving to Zor. Is there something that happens that initiates the paranormal atmosphere at this village? Not really. There, there. I mean, you don't have any violence. There's no murders. It's not a site of executions. They weren't burning witches. You know, they, it was nothing like that. Um, there's a lot of folklore in the area, and one of them uh, would be ghost lights or ghost balls that people would see um, floating throughout the area at night. Now, of course, you've got you've got frontiersmen, you've got settlers. You've got people who are afraid of things that they cannot explain. So for them to be walking through the woods at night and looking out across the field and seeing these glowing balls of light floating caused quite a commotion. And, of course, now we know that that could be you know, swamp gas or something along those lines. But back then, they believed that these mysterious lights were ghosts or spirits that were floating throughout the area. So you have that folklore, but as far as some big, uh, you know, accident happening or some tragedy or, or, you know, something like that happening there, you don't have that. Uh, what you do have is a village that was based basically on a medium in a trance, and you have these people coming and believing that there's their precious Azor Hotel uh, is cursed. And is is part of the reason to blame for the demise of the society. This community, this village, when it was um, first organized and taken over by the Ohio Historical Society, they gave daytime tours, and they still do give daytime tours in the village. You have pe- people that are dressed in period attire that walk around that will lead you around in small groups and tell you about the Zorites. Um, so, of course, this has started back in the 1970s. Well, you have these tour guides taking people throughout the buildings, and occasionally weird things would happen while they would be on tour. For instance, they would be in a room in the hotel, and they would be giving their you know, history spiel, and they would hear the sounds of children laughing upstairs. Well, the tour guide would go upstairs thinking, what's going on? Who's, who's in this old building? It's supposed to be just us. And they hear footsteps running around and children laughing. Well, they go upstairs and there's nobody there. The building would be locked up at night. People would be passing by on the street, on the sidewalk, and they would hear a baby crying or children laughing inside the building. So they would call the local police department and say, I think we've got children. Somebody's locked inside this building. 
after hours, we need to come here and open this building up and see what's going on. And they would never find anybody. Uh, in the number one building, the old the old mansion building, that's very grand, very grand building that was built uh, for Joseph Bymiller. He was the spiritualist leader of Zor, and he lived in the building for a short time. Uh, in that building, we have a story from a worker, a volunteer who was there giving a daytime tour, and it was quiet. Uh, she was in the building by herself, and she just strolled down the hallway, and she saw what she thought was another volunteer at the end of the hallway. And the volunteer walked down the hall and went into a room. So our tour guide goes down through the hallway to follow to see who this other volunteer was, and she walks into a room. There's only one way in and one way out, and there's nobody standing in the room. So you have these stories that have, have happened for, you know, the last 30 years of, of the Ohio Historical Society giving these daytime tours. Oh, okay. And if people like your research or presentations, um, you're also going to be doing a conference in Alton, Illinois, uh, in the spring, and we give you a chance to uh, discuss that. And hopefully you'll have you know, your maps there of, you know, like the, the state of Ohio, because I, I do want to use the map to lead into some of the cryptids in the area, like Grassman. So uh, if you want to plug the your upcoming appearance, and then we can ease into the grass man oh sure sure i have a um one of my favorite conferences uh annual conference is taking place june 26th through the 27th in alton illinois and it is the haunted america conference and it is uh organized and led by troy taylor and troy taylor has written hundreds of books uh he's a speaker he heads up his own tour company um, he organizes this, and it is a big, big conference. Um, there's a lot of speakers that are going to be there this year. Uh, Jennifer Jones from The Dead History, Seth Breedlove from Small Town Monsters is going to be there, oh, Richard okay. Estep, yeah, Richard Estep, April Slaughter. Um, there's a lot of great speakers. I'm going to be there as well. It is uh, a fascinating weekend. So if you're interested in not only just ghosts, but cryptids, the, you know, the paranormal, the unexplained, there's lots of after-hour uh, workshops to do, um, ghost hunts, uh, and it is it is fun. And this is the, um, gosh, I want to say, I think it's the 19th year for the conference. 19th, 20th year for it. Yeah, it's been going on. It's been going on a while. So I'm looking forward to it, and it always sells out. So I suggest that people, if they're interested in it, just to do a, a Google search for Haunted America Conference, and it'll pop up, and you can you can buy tickets and uh, you know plan plan your weekend in Alton. There's a lot to do in that area, and it's 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 a lot of fun to do. I really look forward to that conference. Okay. 
So, sounds good. And I've so, got other other conferences going on too as well. But that's uh, you know I hate to say that's my favorite child right now, but that is my favorite child right now. <laughs> They're all like my children. <laughs> okay, and you know I uh, when I think you were doing your um, making a, a local stop on your uh, Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum book tour. Yeah, that was where I got your map of Ohio, and you know, you're covering all the Bigfoot sightings, uh, UFO sightings, uh, you know, like the Grassman. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I think Grassman is a new cryptid for us to introduce to our listeners. What what's the story behind Grassman? Well, I think it depends on who you talk to. You know, it's 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 like give me your theory on ghosts and the paranormal, and you ask ten people, and you kind of get you know different opinions. Uh, what I'm, what I know of is that you know it's one of the most legendary cryptids in Ohio. Uh, the Grassman is sometimes he's referred to as uh, the Eastern Bigfoot. Um, and you know you, when you've got a creature that's seven foot tall and, and 300 pounds, who, who's going to argue with whatever name you want to call him by? Uh, but sightings on that hidden Ohio map that you that you spoke of, they they range all over the state. Um, there's some in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. There are some south of Canton, Ohio, and, and the Minerva area. Um, you know, Lauren Coleman, very famous cryptozoologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that you know the Ohio grassmen they have they have a more human-like appearance and are more human-looking than what you would call the Bigfoot. And they happen to be a little bit shorter than Bigfoot as well. So, you know, there there have been hundreds of sightings all over uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, all over the East Coast. And I guess it just depends on, on who you talk to as to whether it's a, a grass man or if it's a, a Bigfoot sighting. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, we, we may have to investigate that uh, topic in, in more detail. Oh, I, I, oh for yeah, sure. Yeah, that uh, that's you know one of the I, I've heard uh, a police officer, a friend of mine, talk about. You know, he he had to investigate that uh, because of some sighting, and it, it was a, a new uh, cryptid introduced to me you know, a few years mm-hmm. uh, ago, uh, but it's. Not as well known as uh, correct. You know, quite a few other ones uh, you know, cover some of the white wolves, uh, you know, kind of like werewolf type uh, creatures in your uh, fireside folklore uh, uh, book. Uh, um, but there are those cryptids in the area. Um, you know, we've approached you know the first under the first hour, getting to the second one. You know, we still have some 
some of your major investigations to uh, get into. So you might as well uh, start on that now. Yeah, you've done a lot of research. Okay, work seems to be caught between words here or something because he is definitely Mark we can't hear you so um, if you are still listening (laughs) there is no sound coming from you nor her and um, oh well oh are you there I'm here I I can hear Mark and I can hear you Barbara you can't hear me okay it's I can hear now you. I can. Yes, you're, Mark. You're back. You weren't. You weren't there a minute ago. Something's kind of screwy here. But okay, keep going, guys. I'm here. Okay. So, but um, so, Sherry, you, you know, you've participated in you know, Civil War reenactments. You've gone to you know, the the major uh, Civil War battlefields. Uh, you've gone to the, you know, more of like the uh, skirmishes in uh, West Virginia. But one of your major research projects, they, uh, you know, that was constructed post-Civil War was the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Uh, what is the legacy of the Civil War at this building? Well, the the building that you're talking about is a Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Right. And, and for the sake of having to say all those words, I, I like to call it TAWA. It goes by, by TAWA. Uh, T-A-L-A, of course. Um, it's also known as the Western State Hospital. Uh, National Historic Landmark. I have investigated it since it opened uh, for tours. And I've done numerous investigations there. I've done uh, many overnighters with uh, group tours that have that have come here. Um, you know, the building was, was it's, it's, it's had multiple names. I mean, it's, it's been called the uh, Western State Hospital, the uh, Western Virginia Lunatic Asylum, uh, and now, of course, it's Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which was the original name. And they they did begin building this uh, before the Civil War, and it was interrupted for a time frame because they basically ran out of money. Because if you remember you know, your West Virginia history, West Virginia was not a state until 1863. Mm-hmm. So you know, when this building was built, there was a lot of um, chaos in Virginia, chaos across the nation with the outbreak of the of the war between the states, and um, you know the building of the building was stalled out for for a while there, and then they they got their money together and um, they had civil war raids. There was a gold robbery there in town. I mean, <laughs> this building really was being constructed during a a very chaotic time frame. Again, very very large building, uh, the second largest stone-cut building in the world behind the Kremlin, and wow. it's made of limestone. You've got that quartz, you know, crystal content of this building. You have a building that was built to house uh, the insane, 
But it wasn't only the insane that were taken there as patients and brought inside that building. Um, for instance, some of the first admissions were women that were suffering from menopause. Back in those days, of course, we didn't really know what menopause was. We didn't know what Alzheimer's was. We didn't know what uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome was. Uh, we weren't sure of what these illnesses were. We just knew that these people were not right. They were different from us. And so then, back in the day, your husband, if you suffered from menopause, could simply sign his name to a piece of paper and have you committed. And the glory of it for the men back in the day is if you had a wife that you couldn't stand, you could come up with some kind of an excuse and drop her off at the asylum. And often you could have the children taken there with your wife. So you have women that suffer from menopause. You have Civil War soldiers who are suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, I'm sure. You've got women, young girls who are unwed mothers, and the family is greatly embarrassed by this pregnancy that's illegitimate, and they could have you committed there as well. So... You know, there, and there was a lot of that going on back in the early days of the uh, of the asylum. It, it really, uh, you know, I, I, after he, hearing you know more, uh, you go into it in, you know more extensively on on your library lecture tour. It, it, it's. Um, you know, j- just really um, creepy. The the kinds of I, I, this it really seems like it was experimenting, uh, doing medical experiments on people. Well, they were they they weren't sure what was going to work. You know, let's let's try this approach. Uh, you go back and look at the history of psychiatry in Europe with uh, some of the methods that they would. Uh, try to cure you uh one apparatus was a big chair that they would strap you down into and they would spin that they would crank this chair up and they would spin you for like an hour in this chair and the belief was that they would balance the fluid in your body if you were unbalanced the way to get you balanced would be to shake you up and spin you around you know they're going to try anything uh the trans-allegheny lunatic asylum Uh, They would do ice pick lobotomies, uh, which basically ended up making you in almost a vegetative state. You lost all personality when that procedure was done. Um, Another procedure would be um, a cold water shock treatment where they would wrap you up in towels, put you in a bathtub, restrain you in the bathtub, and pack ice around your body. Now, if you lay there in a bathtub you know, against your will, surrounded by blocks of ice, your body temperature is going to drop. You're going to be basically suffering from hypothermia. Well, we didn't know what that was yet back mm-hmm. back in the 19th century. Uh, your body mechanisms would slow down. Your heart rate would slow down. Your respiratory rate would slow down. Your aggression would disappear because you're basically frozen. And that treatment, that's where we get the, the phrase chill out. You've heard that. Hey, just mm-hmm. chill out. That's what comes from that treatment. 
So you have doctors and nurses and the medical staff trying these various crazy treatments to try to cure people. And, you know, many times it, it did nothing. It, would, it, it wouldn't work or it might kill you. Um, and, you know, they just, they just did whatever experiment they could. The most horrific for me in the research that I did for my book uh, on Trans-Allegheny was the 10-minute um, the ice pick lobotomy procedure which was perfected by Dr. Walter Freeman, who traveled all over the U.S. bragging that he could do this quick, cheap, you know, inexpensive, fast surgery um, that required nothing basically but the patient to be restrained. No medication would be given. Uh, and he would use a, a surgical type of an ice pick and a surgical hammer. And he would go not through the center of the forehead that you would typically see, you know, that would require some anesthesia. He would go through the tear duct and he would place that ice pick up next to the tear duct and tap it with a surgical hammer and go up into the frontal lobe, which would then affect the uh, personality of that individual. So therefore you never had to medicate that person again because you took away their personality, and you took away their aggression and their their moodiness, their violent episodes. In 10 minutes, somebody's life could be changed by this man. And he went all over the state of West Virginia. Uh, I think it was the early 1950s. He did 275 procedures within the space of one week in West Virginia. Wow. And housewives, housewives were told that they would be a better wife and a better mother to their children if they would have that procedure done. So some women would come in for the procedure on their own free will, thinking that it would help them be a better woman. Oh, I, 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 that's just uh, frightening. It is. Uh, I remember one medical journal that I read said that there were more transorbital lobotomies done in one year than there were tonsillectomies in the United States. So w w with yeah, this kind of, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, it's, Call it what it is, basically a Nazi tactic. Uh, what is the legacy that it that th this doctor left at at the hospital? And it, it, uh, I can understand, you know, the patients uh, that negative energy being confined there but you know what when you're doing your paranormal investigations of this huge building you know what are you ascertaining well you know i i think that the the reason that this location has so much activity uh, is because of the mistreatment of the patients. Um, some patients were held against their will. They were misdiagnosed. 
you had uh, people suffering from Alzheimer's that would be taken there back in the early days that would be put into a room with somebody that was deviant or criminally insane. And you have patients murdering other patients. There was one story Mm. where uh, two patients held down another patient and they picked up the end of the, of the metal bed frame, his own bed and put it against his skull. And the other one jumped up and down on top of the bed frame, pushing that. Yeah. So you had stuff like this. You had, and you had uh, patients that uh, murdered other patients. You had patients that committed suicide. If you had a pregnant woman, and of course this did happen, you know, the, the patients would get together and somebody would become pregnant. If that woman would give birth, the baby would stay with the mother until age 16. And then they were given the choice to leave if they wanted to. A lot of these people, they didn't, they didn't leave. This was all that they knew. You know, this, this asylum, they got, a, they got a bed, they got fed, they had medication if they needed it. They were taken care of. They didn't know how to function out in the real world. So you have all of this death. You have disease. You have mistreatment. You have the murders, the suicides. Um, and sure, you had good doctors. Sure, you had good medical staff. But, you know, for every good doctor, I'm sure there was another one who was willing to experiment to further the field of medicine in a way that probably wasn't proper. And I think the energy um, from the wrongdoings to these people and their suffering, uh, that energy is trapped in that building. Uh, Not only there, but directly behind the building, you have thousands of patients that are buried in unmarked graves. And what kind of a legacy does that leave? Thousands. Thousands. You remember you had the influenza epidemic in 1917 and 1918 that killed millions of people across the world. And you had all of these people together. And a communicable disease like that and like tuberculosis would run rampant. So you have these people being buried and, and, you know, they're put out in this field and they were given small markers. But back in the 1970s, one of the uh, groundskeepers decided he could mow a little bit more efficiently if he didn't have all these markers to go around. And he pulled the markers. So now you have nothing but a field and you have unrecognized burials there. And I think that in itself speaks for just the darkness, you know, and the heaviness uh, and the paranormal activity that takes place in the building. Well, uh, uh, that's – I think it's uh, – and your uh, Whipple uh, chapter that – and you talk about you know, like there's a sadness that hangs over the area. It's you, you get the same feeling with with, with uh, you know the uh, asylum here. Just just the uh, horrible treatment of people, the de- dehumanization. It, it just seems mm-hmm. like uh, there, there's. Some uh, like a crying out to be seen as a real person, 
Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, you think of the emotions of these people over, you know, the over 100 years that this building was, was functioning. Um, think of the fear, the sadness, the hate, the anger, uh, all of this. This is energy, you know. Uh, people that are very faithful and, and religious and, and, you know, they believe in prayer. Prayer is energy. That's intent. You know, you have the intent to help someone or, or to do good when you pray. Mm-hmm. And so think about those people, those thousands and thousands of people that were there, uh, that prayed, that wept, that murdered other patients, that um, were forced to endure these horrific treatments and all of that energy. And then again, you have a building uh, that's made of, of quartz and crystal. You know, basically, you have a river that runs out in front of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. So, uh, you know, again, the perfect, the perfect recipe for paranormal activity. And, and as a Civil War reenactor, you know, to go into the oldest part of the, of the uh, asylum, which is the Civil War uh, area, and, and to realize that, that you know, these, these men, these soldiers – were put in here with violent murderers and, and criminal, uh, criminally insane people. It's, it's sad. It's so sad. And we, ju- we just didn't know any better back during that, that time frame. Yeah, and when we, it, it was – became um, functional in the 1860s, how – when – did it fortunately close? <laughs> right, right. Well, they started constructing it in 1858, and uh, you know it, it was designed after uh, the Kirk, Kirkbride plan, um, which means that you know you've got these long, sprawling hallways and beautiful gardens and things like that, because that was designed to inspire and and help people and heal people. So when they built that building, it was designed to only hold 2,500 people. Excuse me. 250 people, 250 people. But then flash ahead to the 1950s, and you have about 2,500 people in that building that was only designed for 250. So it's uncrowded, poor conditions, um, and it ended up closing in 1994 just because the building deteriorated. I mean, can you imagine what it would cost to heat a building of that size? Um, you know, so they ended up building a new facility, and uh, and that's where you know the majority of the of the patients uh, were taken to. And when it closed in 1994, and it sat there uh, closed for a while, and became kind of derelict on the inside. People would break in, and they would investigate, or they'd go in there and they'd do paintball wars, and you know all kinds mm-hmm. of crazy things and and whatnot. And um, I remember. Seeing this building on eBay for sale, and I thought, "Oh, I'd like to have that." <laughs> uh, and then it it went off of eBay for some reason. Then it went up for sale, and then the the Jordan family uh, purchased it. And I think they've had it since about, oh, I think about 2006 is when they got that building there. And uh, they maintained the, the the cemeteries out behind and. Um, they have a couple hundred acres of property right there, and they do they do a lot of good 
they do. The Jordan family does. They they have a uh, wonderful museum there on the history of psychiatry. Um, they uh, have renovated the inside of the building. They have added, um, you know, beautiful carpets and, and paintings and decorated it as to the way it was back in the day. So they have done a, a, a great deal of good with their asylum purchase. Does um, I don't know what the right word a benevolent act like the Jordan family has done to bring a sense of uh, peace or decency to a place where there's so, so many ho- horrific mm-hmm. things happen. Uh, it, does a act of kindness like that help to uh, lessen or diminish the uh, haunting paranormal uh, aspects of a building? Um, I don't. I mean, I think it, it, it's been wonderful what they have done. They have opened up the building. You have thousands of people that come from all over the world to go through the building. It's been featured on numerous documentaries and, and you know, ter- uh, television shows and whatnot. So it's brought awareness to the mistreatment of uh, patients back during the Victorian era. Uh, It has allowed people to walk through the hallways and see how we used to chain people to the walls and psychiatric lockdowns. And I think it's it's like a wake-up call to many of us to see how far that we've come in the treatment of, um, you know, of diseases and of conditions. Uh, and And that's a good thing. Uh, but the paranormal mm-hmm. activity, I think it's going to go on no matter what. I mean, I don't think you can gloss over that. It's there. And uh, and you can feel it. And it, you can feel it in the middle of the day. So many people uh, have contacted me, especially during the writing of the book on, on Tala. And they would email me and they'd say, hey, we captured something on our photographs and we just took a day tour. Could you take a look at the picture for me? Or they'll email me with something that happened while they were just walking around on the grounds outside. They hadn't even gone into the building yet. So, you know, it doesn't have to be the middle of the night or midnight or 3 a.m. or the witching hour or whatever you want to conjure up Mm -hmm. in your mind for activity to happen. It can happen when you're just walking around during the day. And I think it's just a nudge, you know, from the other side as to, hey, you know, we're still here. You can, you can still feel us. You can still feel the sadness. Um, what, what happened to us was not right. You know, you can liken that to, to Gettysburg or Fredericksburg or Antietam, any of these battlefields. You know, you get out of your car, you know, driving, driving across Gettysburg is one thing to look out your window, but once you get out of your car and you walk across that battlefield, so many people are moved to tears because they can feel you know, the sadness of over 50,000 people that died on that field. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's it's almost atmospheric. 
Okay. So, uh, you, you know, Tala is you know, one of your your centerpieces of your literary canon. It's a uh, moving experience to hear you uh, discuss, you know, the variety of reasons for uh, people being there, and you know, so much of it stems from uh, the C- Civil War, as well as you know, just people not understanding behaviors at, at that time. But you know, it, it yeah, you do uh, just a fantastic job of re- recreating that. Uh, you know, mm. about uh, hundred and thirty year uh, period in which it was a uh, functioning hospital, but mm-hmm. you know, you know, one of your big projects as a tour company director is your Celtic crossing uh oh, trips. Yes. And um now you now you are taking people on these uh trips to Irish and Scottish castles. Um uh, we're and we need to he- hear a little bit about. It. Oh when sure. I, I, I maybe uh, do. Do we have to skip the uh, any stories associated with the uh, Guinness Brewery? <laughs> that's where we. That's where we combine um, spirits and spirits. It, Get it? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. We. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we may have to say that for you know, like a really late show, but yeah, let's just maybe just stick <laughs> stick with just the uh, uh, cast cast. Oh, sure, and, yeah. Uh, I so uh, I tell us a little bit like if, if we're to uh, fly over there and um, go on this trip, this what uh-huh. are we going to encounter? Well, the the first time I went to Ireland and Scotland was in 2014, and uh, I took my husband over. It was his 50th uh, birthday gift. What what a great gift, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we were over there for 10 days, and we did a, a boat ride across Loch Ness, which has been a, a paranormal bucket list uh, thing for me for many years, and uh, fell in love with it. And I, I I knew that I wanted to put together some kind of a adventure for people to sign up and go with me. So in my mind, back in 2014, I started composing a haunted Ireland trip and a Celtic crossing trip, which was Ireland and Scotland. Um, This September, I have a haunted Ireland trip that takes place. So we fly out of Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, it's uh, September of this year. It's eight days and uh, seven nights. And we explore across Ireland. We do Dublin and Galway and the Hill of Tara, where the ancient kings were crowned. We mm-hmm. go to Glasnevin Cemetery, where there's millions of people buried in in uh, in Dublin. There are more people buried in Glasnevin Cemetery than there are living in Dublin. 
which is an, that's another show in itself, Glasnevin Cemetery. It's a fascinating place. Uh, but for the Celtic Crossing trip, I have two of those scheduled for 2021. One is in the springtime. It is sold out. We have 45 people who have already committed to that. So we went ahead and we were doing a fall trip uh, in September, a Celtic Crossing in 2021. And what what the Celtic Crossing trip is 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 we start off in Dublin, and um, of course we do the Dublin storehouse, the brewery there, the the maker of Guinness, which we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> but uh, we we take off and we do uh, locations such as Lep Castle. Lep Castle is supposed to be the most haunted castle in Europe. On some lists, on other lists, it's just the most haunted castle in Ireland. But it is privately owned, and we go there. We do a boat ride across Loch Ness in Scotland. We uh, have a stop at Stirling Castle in Scotland, a stop in Edinburgh Castle in Scotland, and we visit Baymore Stones in Northern Ireland. And these mm. are um, these are stones that were discovered by a farmer. It's on his property, and in Ireland um, they dig peat and they dry the peat out of the right. ground, and that's how they they burn their fires. So you have a peat farmer who owns all this acreage, and he's out digging, and he discovers these stones, and they date back to the Bronze Age. They date back uh, estimations are 2,000 to 1,200 BC. And there are seven stone circles stuck up in this field. So we go up there and we, we uh, have a local psychic who hops on the bus with us and she travels out to Baymore Stones. It's in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland. And we go out there and, and she does some energy work with us. She shows us how to use the dousing rods and the pendulums and things like that so that people uh, can kind of feel the energy of the stones. So the trip uh, in itself is 10 days and nine nights. And um, we are all over the place. We we go into the catacombs under Edinburgh and Scotland. Wow. And um, that is pretty creepy in itself because Edinburgh is basically a city built on top of a city. So you, when you go down into the underground, you're in the old original city part. And um, boy, does it have a vibe. It's got to feel all its own. And that's one of the highlights of, of the trip for me is that and the uh, mm-hmm. the boat ride across Loch Ness. So it's a lot of fun. And, I, you know, my goal with these trips is to educate people mm-hmm. and enlighten them and entertain them and put them amongst all of this old ancient history. You know, that one site that we go to on the Haunted Ireland trip this September coming up is um, – Clon McNoise. It is in oh. County Offaly. Uh, it's an old monastic site, and it dates back to oh gosh, I want to say probably around 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's beautiful. It's on the River Shannon. It is uh, a very very early Christian site. Is that one that has a round tower? Yes, it has a round tower, and it has uh, some Celtic crosses there. Uh, and um, it's just it's just fascinating. You wander the grounds there. You can you think you know you're thinking about monks, 
and the manuscripts and these these beautiful Celtic stones that were built that are still standing. Um, and it's it's fascinating to walk in the footprints of, of the ancients in that way. And that is a very, very, it's off the beaten path. You know, it's kind of like Zor in Ohio. It's, you don't see major tour buses pulling up and people getting out. And every time that I've been there, it's, it has not been crowded. You know, uh, the first time I was there, as a matter of fact, it was just our tour group. And nobody else was walking around. And, uh, you know, it dates back to 545. Beautiful cathedral, the round tower that you spoke of, high crosses. And um, it was said to be like the leading center of religion and learning in all of Europe at the time that it was established. So it's a very sacred site. Okay. And is 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 the yeah this uh, monastic ruin haunted, or is that just a place where you, you no, just there well it's it's a sacred site so it's an energy site but there mm-hmm. is some folklore there is a um there's the ruins of a of a, a church building there on the site and if you stand in one of the doorways in this ruin uh you're supposed to be able to hear the the mumblings and the murmurs of ancient ones praying so there's there's that, you know, not to say that it's haunted, but it is a mysterious earth energy site. Uh, I, I believe that, that the ancient peoples, the early people, could feel this energy, and that is where they put their places of worship or their burial grounds or Stonehenge or any of these, these ancient sites. I, I believe that they could sense this energy, and that's why they chose these these locations and it thrills me to take people there with me and to explain to them a little bit of the history and you know let everybody wander around and and maybe have an experience on top of all of it okay and when when, um you know you go to uh sterling castle um what is the draw there? Uh, you know, it's also surrounded by uh, volcanic peaks or extinct volcanoes, yes, it, really. Yes, yeah. It, it sits up on top of a, a very large volcanic rock above the River Force, and um, that was the, the you know the meeting point between the lowlands. And the highlands. So this is a very ancient, uh, commanding, powerful stronghold site that sits over the countryside. And you know, when you're up in the castle and you're looking out those windows, um, you know, you can you can see places like Stirling Bridge and Bannockburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if anybody's you know seen you know movies with. Uh, you know, about Robert the Bruce or, or William Wallace and Braveheart, anything like that. Um, you know, you're familiar with those those battles and you can you can see those from up top. Um fascinating place. It was a childhood home of Mary Queen of Scots, um, which could be a whole other show in itself, you know, because it's that's that's a pretty cool time frame there in history, in Scottish history. Um and it's definitely one of the must see visitor attractions. 
you know, for people to go to. Now, with it being a stronghold, you know that it was attacked. You know that there was violence that occurred there. Uh, and you know people were murdered. People were shoved out of castle windows. People were executed. Um, so you've got that. You've got that dark history, again, of a very old site um, with, with hundreds and hundreds of years of violence taking place within its walls. Okay. And, and not only that, it's, it's, it's wonderful to wander the hallways of the castle and touch the stone and, and see the, the tapestries on the wall. And uh, the times that we have been there, they've had costumed uh, docents and, you know, interpreters that are, are walking around, um, you know, telling stories and sharing the history of the castle with, um, you know, the visitors. So it's a very cool experience. It's said to be haunted. Uh, of course, you know, various people have reported seeing the image of Mary, Queen of Scots, wandering through the hallways and, um, you know, multiple things. There's a, a very large cemetery down below the um, castle proper as well. It's very, very old with many beautiful tombs and monuments and, and statues. And I could walk for hours down there. As a matter of fact, when we stop, I usually spend uh, more time in the castle below, or excuse me, in the cemetery below, than I do, um, you know, up inside the castle itself. Mark, you've got to make it over there sometime. Uh, I don't think you'd want to leave. No, I, 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 I've, I, I've uh, been to Scotland a couple times. I, I really enjoy it, and yeah, you know, the. Uh, uh, Edinburgh uh, Castle is another one of your stops, and you know you um, realize that you have a family connection to <laughs> the the area. Can, can can you tell us a little bit about your uh, return home to the motherland? Right, right. Well, you know, the first time I'd went over there, as I said earlier, was 2014, and I knew that I had, you know, Scots-Irish blood. I had done my DNA, of course, and I and I knew I was, you know, 65% British and Irish and, and Scottish. So I, I've always felt that connection, and I, for some reason, always felt a connection to Edinburgh Castle. Well, I discovered this past year that my 26th great grandparents lived in the castle which is pretty cool to be able to say i've got documented proof you know i've got dna um they lived there and uh my grandmother passed away in the castle in 1040 and uh her name was margaret my grandmother margaret was married to my grandfather malcolm who was the third king of scotland which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. But to find out, you know, as I wandered the hallways, before I even knew the story of my grandmother passing away, I was always drawn to Edinburgh Castle. It's one of those deja vu things when you're walking down the hallway, you're like, oh, I felt like I've been down this hallway before. Well, you know, I'm thinking maybe I saw it on television, maybe it was in a documentary, maybe it was in a movie. And it's like I knew where I was going. And then to find out that I have this bloodline connection 
and that my grandmother passed away in the castle uh, makes me wonder about deja vu, cell memory, the ability for your body to remember something from the past. It makes me think about past lives. And, you know, I firmly believe that that connection that I felt is, is, is one from this and it, and it's documented. So I, I really look forward uh, to going back to Edinburgh castle and to, and to walking around and uh, you know, being where my, my grandparents lived and, and they ruled, uh, you know, not only is the castle haunted, you know, you can talk to any amount of tour guides there, people that have volunteered and hear multiple stories of, you know, the lady in blue that wanders the hall or, um, uh, you know, the violence that has occurred out in front of the castle where they used to burn the witches, you know, mm-hmm. make a big spectacle of that out in front of the castle. And um, it's just, it's such an impressive building and a stronghold sitting up there on Again, you know, a big block of volcanic rock over top of the castle and uh, at the end of the Royal Mile. And um, I look forward to going back there and and exploring some more in 2021. And if people are interested in, you know, going along with me for that fall trip in 2021 to Ireland and Scotland, they can uh, and visit my website. And all the information is there at hauntedhistory.net. Very good. And... Uh, you know, if I make it back to Scotland, you know, one of the places I saw from uh, Stor- Stirling Castle, but I mm-hmm. I didn't make it uh, over, you know, uh, get a bus out to uh, Dune Castle, but uh, you've been there and you know, that was actually uh, Dune Castle was actually uh, used as one of the settings for uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> right right and Game of Thrones and Outlander okay so you know, you've been there what uh, what was uh I just couldn't see the castle from you know fifteen miles away. Away, <laughs> what's it like up close? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I have been there and only on the outside because it seems like every time that we pull up, they've closed. So we're hoping that in twenty twenty one, we're going to make sure that we get there before the place closes. Um, and actually get inside to explore. So it's been kind of most mostly like a, a photo stop to get out. And you know, it's it's cool. You know, it, being a fan of Game of Thrones and of Outlander and of Monty Python to actually you know visit one of the one of the movie sets. So that was a thrill anyway, just to stand out there. But I would like to get in. I want to check out the kitchen because it's supposed to be pretty cool in uh, the Great Hall and, and you know. All of that. So I hope to have a full report to you uh, maybe next time I'm on. Okay. No, I would. You're you're welcome to come back and talk talk all about that. And, you know, it's, I, I actually, uh, you know, this you know, since we're 
you know, this is just you know one of my uh, usual rants about so- something uh, that may seem ir- irrelevant, but you know, you know, we are talking about uh, uh, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and you know, just this uh, within the last week, uh, Terry Jones uh, passed away. You know, he's part of yes. You know, uh, you know the some of the he's one of the characters in the spam 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 uh, skit, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, he was in the you know, nudge nudge skit as well. But you know, what a lot of people, uh, you know, I really didn't realize what a uh, um. Serious historian he was, and, uh, uh, until I was, uh, you know, my Chaucer uh, college professor, uh, I was highly recommending his book. And it was like mm. uh, uh, this uh, analysis of uh, Chaucer's uh, The Night. Really? No. Yeah. Oh, like, that's a surprise. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and then he w- he went on to write. Uh, he co-authored a a, um, a a book with uh, I think it's just, uh, several other. I I, I should have uh, brought brought it in here. I, I didn't realize I was going to you know, just go into uh, you know one of these segues. Uh, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's like a uh, uh, there might have been like. Four, five, six authors, but it, it was actually invest. It, uh, I think the title of the book is "Who Murdered Chaucer," and it, it was looking at um, a theory that um, some of Chaucer's uh, kind of like anti-church uh, jokes uh, brought about, you know. The disapproval of church figures, mm. but it was uh, ter- Terry Jones. You know, since we are talking about Monty Python, it, it was ter- Terry actually yes. uh, had those uh, two uh, Chaucerian uh, themed books. Part, uh, that I, is I, interesting. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, uh, they're they're worth the read. So. Okay, that, so, is, and, that is interesting. So, um, and what did you think about being on Loch Ness? That's kind of, yeah, you know, like the major I, cryptid. Yes. Site. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I have been on Loch Ness. Uh, six times, I believe. Not that I'm bragging about it. I feel uh, blessed to have ever even been on it once. Um, it it is it's fascinating the history of the area. You know, the banning of the monster from the river, from River Ness to Loch Ness. I mean, that's part of the folklore of the area. Um, but to actually be on the boat and to be looking at the, you know, they've got all these flat screen 
TVs set up where you can watch the sonar. And you can see as you, you pull away from shore on this boat. And it's a, it's a um, two-level boat. So you can go up, up top, you know, and put your face out in the breeze or the Scottish rain or whatever and look for, for Nessie while you're up, up top. But as you pull away from the shore and you're sitting there and you're watching the sonar and it starts off at, you know, 40 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet, you know, rather quickly. And you see the depths show up and you're like, holy, holy cow, this, this lake is huge and it's very deep. And as you look at the, um, you know, the, the landscape around you and how remote you are, you can understand why things would be able to survive in that lake that have not been proven to exist yet. It's massive. It, it, it's it, massive. It, and it, the, the water's so dark. It's too. dark. It's very brackish, dark, brown, black. Um, and I think every time I've been on the boat, it has rained just a little bit or had a good Scottish, Scottish mist going as I go up top. And um, a funny story about the last time I was on the boat, of course, I got, I've got 45 people on this boat with me. You know, we've been traveling together and uh, it's interesting. They have a bar on the boat so you can drink as you're looking out the window to find Nessie, (laughs) which I think is is kind of funny, but uh, I'm looking around for my husband. You know, I got 45 people on this boat and there's only two places, you know, he could really be on the, on the first level of the boat and up top. And I'm looking all over the place. and I'm like, I can't find him anywhere. And, uh, I see him like 20 minutes later and I'm like, where have you been? He said, they let me drive the boat. And I'm like, what? He goes, I've been, I've been navigating the boat for the last half hour. <laughs> so that was his big thrill was being able to, to navigate the boat on Loch Ness. Well, how, how, how did Perry uh, you know, finagle that deal? I'm not sure. You know, I'm I'm entertaining and talking to my group of 45 people, and he mysteriously disappears. But you know, he's an engineer, um, so and and he's he's a you know a, was a dive master years ago, and I'm sure that he got up there and started talking to the captain, and I think the captain said, "You want to you want to take it." from here for a little bit and I'm sure he jumped right on that because you know that would never happen here in the states if you went on on a lake somewhere on a on a guided tour boat they would never hand the boat over to somebody that they didn't know Uh, well uh, look what happened different over there uh, 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 look what happened when the skipper uh, gave gave the uh, uh, wheel to uh, Gilligan Right. This is true. <laughs> so, okay. So, we, we yeah, you're, you know, been touring Loch Ness. Um, you know, it's, uh, supposedly since what, uh, the the fifth century, uh, Saint Aidan, is that the right? Uh, ha- had like the first documented sighting of 
messy. Right, right. It, it, yeah, I mean, right the history thing? goes. Uh, you know, Brendan. I'm trying to. No, no, no. I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I'm a little. I'm a little foggy. Um, yeah, I, I would, it'll uh, come to me probably. I yeah. I I haven't been uh, uh, bit, been smacked in the forehead with a uh, two by four. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, to, right. Today, I just I, I I just completely forgot the saint's name. But uh, is it Kieran? I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember who. I don't. Columba. It's Columba. It came to me. Yeah. Yes, because I remember because there is a hotel along the River Ness called the Columba, and we we have stayed there when we've been over there on tour. So it was St. Columba that banned this serpent-like monster from the River Ness and banned it back to the lake because people were – basically, they were freaking out. Uh, This creature had had come close to shore and had nabbed a fisherman. And there were there were witnesses that saw it. So there was a you know a great fear of this this creature, and he supposedly went out into the river and 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 banned it, and uh, forced it to go back up uh, into the uh, into the lock up into the lake. Yeah, and, and this was documented in like the uh, about the fifth century. Five, yeah, yeah, five five hundred. I'm trying to remember to five mid five fifty maybe. Something like that, five fifty, five sixty. So, um, yeah, so, what do we make of this early um, cryptid documentation by a uh, someone who? Would uh, go on to be canonized. Uh, you, know, you, you would expect uh, the person to be uh, uh, tr- trustworthy in, in what they're saying and or, or writing in their illuminated manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and you know, and the, and the story goes, the legend, the folklore with with the whole situation um, with Saint Columba was that the, there was a man that was swimming in the river. And uh, he was attacked by a water beast of some sort. And uh, this beast drug him under the water, and, you know, everybody saw this happening, and they tried to rescue him by boat, and uh, he was killed. And and Columba uh, came out, and the beast approached Columba, and Columba made the sign of the cross and said, you know, uh, go away. Yeah, don't touch this man. Leave. And And... You know the the witnesses said that it was as if that the creature had been uh, pulled back with ropes or or invisible some type of force field pulled this 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 creature back, and um, they they believed that it was some type of a of a miracle. So you know, and it's it's folklore, it's folklore, but it has been documented. So. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we believe? I look at everything that's been documented that was supposed to happen in the in the Bible. Uh, whole other show there too, right? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we've touched on that uh, uh, earlier too. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, Bar- Barbara said, there, you know, we have about two minutes left. So, you, you know, 
you know, your uh, memory was really sharp, to, uh, you know, sharper. And I, I just uh, completely forgot uh, St. Columbus' names. I, I, I don't think uh, you have as much brain damage as I do. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's a special nightlight. Uh, you know, uh, welcome to you. So, h- how about you? You uh, get, give everyone, yeah, you know, your uh, website, uh, you know, contact information, and Barbara could uh, s- step in and wrap up the show. And I just want to thank you so much, Sherry, for being a wonderful guest. Oh, Mark, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, and uh, I hope to be back in the future. And if you folks are be. interested in – oh, thank you. Uh, but if uh, if folks are interested in my tours and the classes and presentations and, and uh, events that I do, um, they can check it out at hauntedhistory.net. I'm also on Facebook under Sherry Brake and Haunted Heartland Tours and on Instagram and uh, all that good stuff. So, you know, my phone number is at the website. My email address is at the website. And I answer the phone and I answer emails and all that good stuff. So I love hearing from people. And thank you, Barbara and, and Mark, again, for, for having me on tonight. Well, it was our pleasure. And thank you so much for being here. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to go I want to go castle hunting now. Uh, <clears throat> but... For now tonight, thank you so much, everybody, for listening in. We really enjoyed having you with us, and I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. So have a great evening, take care, and we will talk to you next Monday and Tuesday. Good night now.